today on crossfire podcast the last of us part one remake is it just a cash grab and let's discuss physical media and the preservation of our video game history all coming at you next Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Crossfire Faith and Gaming, where we discuss the latest gaming news, we talk about a topic that is interesting, and we bring you a community, uh, more than anything else, where you are loved, where you are supported, and where faith and fandom meets our spiritual needs and our uh, pop culture needs all at the same time. So uh, let's get into the news for today. Russ, what do we got? Okay, yeah, for news today, we've got a little bit of news. Um, let's start off with some lighter stuff. Uh, David, have you did you ever play the Grand Theft Auto remake trilogy that was released a little while back? Uh, no, I did not. I okay. never tried it. I think it was it was probably day two that they came out with the news that it was not doing well uh, on people's systems. So I think I just avoided it altogether. Though I was excited for things like people being able to go back and play GTA 3 with better graphics, the, the news was not so good. Well, the news was so bad that Rockstar has not only killed a Red Dead Redemption remake, a GTA 4 remake, but also new rumor just published today, uh, July 11th, Red Dead Redemption 2 PS5 and Xbox Series X versions have been shelved. So it would appear that the trilogy did so poorly that Rockstar is like, we're just going to move on to GTA 6 and go for that cash cow. Uh, and so we are not going to get any of those three games I mentioned. What are your thoughts? Uh, I know that I don't you didn't play the original Red Dead, did you? No, I was really hoping that uh, they were going to remaster it. Uh, if nothing else, I think I was hoping that I could get it and play it through the PlayStation Um the new PS plus thing, because I wasn't at a PS three game originally. So one of those yep. games you couldn't play unless you went back and, you know, stole somebody's PS three and, and the physical disc. Um, so hopefully at some point, you know, if that comes to that, uh, then I'll be able to play it. But yeah, I was really hoping for updated graphics. I was kind of sad about it. I was also sad um, just cause I love tinkering and seeing how graphics are and seeing, you know, as they get better over time. So I was excited because red dead still looks amazing. Uh, I mean, it looked amazing on the PlayStation when it first came out on the PS4 uh, and the Xbox. And so, you know, seeing what it could look like on next gen consoles, um, I was very excited about it. But I guess not. So is uh, it's not going to be possible. No, it would seem that Rockstar is not going to waste the resources on that. So and it makes sense. Add, I, they yeah. know that they're going to get, you know, a million bajillion presales of GTA 6 as soon as they announce it and go live <laughs> with it. Uh, I think that's all they have to do is just say, we're coming out with this game, you know, and then they're going to, they're going to sell billions of dollars. Tons. So tons and tons of copies. Okay. Well, moving on uh, a little bit of industry news, which, you know, a little bit exciting. I'm very interested and hesitant about it, uh, which is the return of E3 in 2023. Of course, we did not get E3 this year. Uh, however, uh, the people who put on uh, PAX, Comic-Con, Star Wars Celebration, uh, all sorts of events are now going to be in charge of putting on E3 next year. So, Dave, what do you think uh, about this news? What do you think E3 will be like? Are you excited? Uh, what are your thoughts on the idea that E3 is coming back next year? 
to me, it's an evolution of the event. Uh, you know, originally E3 was an industry insider event. Uh, only the people who were industry insiders got invited. So it was the Electronics Entertainment Expo that was only for those who worked in electronics and entertainment. Um, then in 20, was it 17 or 18, I think? And I think it was 2018, they announced that it was open to the general public. And so you could go, even if you were just a Joe Schmo off the street with a general public ticket. Uh, I went in 2018 in Los Angeles. I was very excited. Uh, granted, stood in line for three hours to play a 20-minute demo of uh, the next the Tomb Raider game that was coming out. I stood in line for three hours to get a uh, you know demo of the escape room for Fallout 76 and, and got some Nuka-Cola and a uh, Fallout 76 mask. It was a lot of waiting in line. It was kind of cool to be there you know, and see some of those things, but... I would love to see it evolve to be a little bit more public focused uh, and really yeah. be the, you know, the, the auto show of the games industry. Um, you know, everybody can come see what's coming next in terms of video games, video game platforms, um, you know, but I think the other thing is in those things, kind of like an auto show, you need a lot of involvement. Uh, in the years past, I mean, even when I went, Xbox was not present in the room because they owned a Microsoft building right next door to the LA Convention Center. So all of the Xbox events were held over there. Um, PlayStation, the year after I went, basically opted out completely. Uh, yep. So if you could get some of those major hitters back, then I think it would make a huge difference. But, you know, right now as it is, if they don't get them back, then it's kind of like having an auto show where you only have Mitsubishi and, uh, you know, Hyundai come show their cars. And you're like, well, where's the, where's the Toyota? Where's the General Motors? Where's the Chevy? Where's the Ford? Yeah, I, I, I think what I think will happen is those companies will probably be involved in some way or another. Um, and and I, like you said, I think become more public focused. I think you, you do similar to a PAX, uh, and I don't think you include the conferences. So the conferences that have been a staple where it's, you know, the Xbox conference and the PlayStation conference where they announce like their next year of games. I don't think that we'll ever go back to that. I think that those companies have figured out that it is cheaper and better for exposure to do their own events that they control and they promote and they premiere whenever they want. So I don't think we'll get back to that. I think it will be like you know, similar to PAX. It will be just for the people. It'll be for the gamers. It'll celebrate the gamers. That's what I think it'll be. It's sad because I would have loved, I mean, it was a dream of mine growing up to be like, I would love to go to E3, but E3 as it was. Be able to, you know, see the PlayStation conference, Xbox conference, be able to live react with a ton of people in a theater when, you know, uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake gets announced and everybody goes nuts and the crowd just starts screaming. You know, that would have been cool to be a part of. And unfortunately, it seems like we will not get that again. Um, so we'll see. I I'm excited to have it back, but we'll see what they say it's going to be like. Who knows? Maybe Crossfire will be going to E3 in 2023. Uh, up next, some big news. Good news for us, Dave. And I'm actually excited for what this leads into uh, next month, because I think we should have a spoiler cast slash podcast uh, dedicated to this, which is The Last of Us Part 1 remake has gone gold. And the developer says it is not a cash grab. Now, for those of you not aware at home, The Last of Us Part 1 Remake is technically the third release of this video game. And they are charging a full 
PS5 $70 for it. So a lot of people are saying it is just Sony's way of getting more money. It is not worth $70. Uh, David and I are huge Last of Us fans. So to us, it's worth whatever we want to pay because we want to play it again. But Dave, what are your thoughts uh, about uh, you know Last of Us coming back next month? Are you excited for it? And uh, do you think this is just a cash grab or from the comments that this developer makes, do you think it's something bigger and deserves the $70 price tag? I think for me, um, I mean, The Last of Us was the thing that made me buy a PlayStation instead of an Xbox when I first got back into console gaming. Um, a good friend of mine showed me the game, said it was amazing. I played three hours of it. I really wanted to play more. I thought the story was extremely compelling. The graphics were neat. Uh, it was kind of a scary game without being a horror game. It had spooky, scary elements, but it, it, most of all, it was just an intriguing, interesting well-told story. Um, and so for me, that was the thing that made me buy a PlayStation because I said, I can only play this game on a PlayStation. Uh, I bought a PlayStation, played through it, played through the last of us part two, absolutely loved every minute of it. I think on the one hand, I could see that it's not a cash grab. It's them trying to just do what we just said. Rockstar canceled out and didn't do and to do it well, right? Rather than using AI to try to upscale things rather than just applying new textures. My biggest complaint with last of us, the original game was the controls were kind of clunky. Um, the, the user interface was not perfect. They improved that in the last of us part two. I think it makes a lot of sense to come back and say, here's the last of us part one, but with better controls, with better graphics, you know, better gameplay, better mechanics, all of that kind of stuff. Now I do think some of the criticism I've heard about this is that, uh, one of the ways you can buy it is with the hundred dollar pack that gives you added weapons, added, uh, you know, options basically early in the game. And somebody said, you know, for an extra $20, you can absolutely ruin the first part of the game. Because I do remember is one of the things that early on in the game is you're like, all right, I've got a rifle and I've got three rounds. I'm going to have to make very careful decisions about whether I use this and how, and it, it was a game. Every game says, you know, you could choose how you want to play. You can be stealth or you can just run, run in and, and take out the enemies but not every game actually offers those options. This game really, really did. So I do think that piece of it is kind of crummy that they're going to do that. Uh, and I could also see that maybe the, the studio is saying, we're looking at making Last of Us Part 3, but to do that, we're going to need more funding than Sony's willing to give us. So what if we do this other thing? And if we prove to people that it's good, I don't know, I could see that. Last piece I'll say, and then I'll shut up, is I think... Uh, for a lot of different people, they're entering into the Sony universe at a different stage. And I would say this for the same for games, the yeah. same for, you know, movies, right? You know, if you're going to go and you're going to watch Marvel movies, if you're going to start with the very first Spider-Man that came out with, you know, even I would say the first Spider-Man I remember, which is like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, those graphics are not as good as today's graphics, right? This is why movies get remade. This is why stories get yep. retold sometimes for the better. Sometimes not. Um, but you know, my son right now is not old enough to play the last of us, but in a few years when he is, would I rather he go and play a game that has amazing graphics and great gameplay and is still telling the same compelling story? Or would I rather he say, Oh, I've got to go back and play the PlayStation three version with bad graphics and poor controls. I'd rather he play a really good updated version. And then last thing I think is with the new HBO series coming out, 
it may pique more interest in people going back and playing them kind of like uncharted did but then everybody that that wanted to go back and play uncharted one found themselves with pretty old looking gameplay even with the remasters because they were remasters and not remakes russ what are your thoughts yeah, I was about to say, same thing. I think this is really smart. I think the real audience for this game are going to be new Sony gamers, people that want to get into The Last of Us for the first time, which there still are plenty. I mean, exclusives, while they can sell really well and sell, you know, millions of copies, they're not like your GTA 6, your Red Dead Redemption 2 that are selling, you know, 50 million copies. So there is still a very large gaming population that has not played The Last of Us. Not to mention, we have to forget, uh, when they announced this remake, they did say that there was a PC port being developed. So people on PC will get a chance to play this game as well for the first time. So agreed, I I think this is completely different in that sense. I don't think it's a cash grab. I One, I trust Naughty Dog. I mean, let's be honest. When have we not had to trust Naughty Dog with putting out a, a quality product when it comes to gameplay, graphics, and all of that? They always set the bar high. So the fact that they're doing a full-on remake of a game, not just a remaster, and they make sure to say it's a remake, tells me that the game is going to be amazing. So excited for it. We will definitely be doing some coverage. Uh, I would love to do, if you guys didn't already know, uh, we did a spoiler cast for The Last of Us Part Two, where we talked about the themes and different things about the game. Uh, I would say that Dave and I will do that for The Last of Us Part One. It's one of our favorite games, so we will definitely be doing that next month. Yeah, so be able to look I, out I want to share a quote here from the article really quick. Uh, it says here, I'm going to put it up on the screen for everybody. Uh, that Robert Morrison, who also worked on God of War, Resident Evil 7, and Injustice 2, said, The Last of Us Part 1 is the most meticulously built and crafted project I have ever seen or ever been a part of in my entire career. So I think that bodes well for the future of this game. Agreed. The future of the past of this game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. For everybody that's going to buy it again for a third time. And and I uh, I even bought in with the remake. Right when I got in, I started playing it on my PS4 Pro. The remaster. I yeah. was playing the the remaster. That's right. So yes. I think you know I I didn't even have to play the original original. So I think it's gonna be good. Uh, real quick before we get into the topic of the show, because we have two articles that are technically about the topic of the show. Yeah. Uh, one last thing: we've been talking about this in the podcast before, but constantly over the last year, it would seem that there have been a number of studies on gaming and what it does for kids and i know we have younger people listening and we have parents listening and we always like to kind of touch on the par- the parental side of things and the idea is you know we we just recently saw an article that talked about how gaming can help with dyslexia uh people who game for more than an hour are considerably more intelligent with their iq level and now just recently posted today is uh, neuroscience news posted an article talking about the fact that video game players show enhanced brain activity and decision-making skills. So we're just constantly seeing these studies come out that are showing all the positive effects of video games. And I can't remember the last time I saw an article showing a negative effect from video games. I mean, we, we know all the studies talking about how violence in video games do not lead to violence in real life. So that one has kind of been debunked and we see all of these positives. So David, as a parent, what are your thoughts when you see stories like this? I know I talked to a, a parent of my, a friend of mine 
who's a parent and, you know, their kids study uh, struggling with dyslexia and struggling with different issues. And I mentioned the article and showed them and they were very surprised, surprised and pleased. And they said, you know, we've been starting to play games with our kids more and, you know, helping them read through the game and letting the kids also do their best in reading. And they have seen quite a bit of an improve improvement in their, their reading. So Dave, what are your thoughts when we see these articles and things come up showing what video games can do for younger adolescents? Yeah, I think it, to me, it always just speaks to the nuance, right? You know, that you can't take any specific thing and say, oh, all of that is bad, right? You know, it would essentially be like saying, you know, food is terrible for your body, right? Because everybody that eats food dies. And so food is just terrible, you know, and if you eat too much food, you might get overweight. And so therefore we can't eat food at all. Yep. No, you can eat food. It's just about choosing what and how and when, and, you know, and it's much more nuanced than just putting one blanket category of food, you know? Now, do I think that it's good for teens to go out and play 20 hours a day of uh, call of duty? No. Do I think it's good for anybody to be playing 20 hours a day of any video game? No, cause you're not getting enough sleep. Um, but <laughs> I think when looking at how video games could be positive, right? We have to say there are possible positive impacts for visual acuity, for decision-making, for reading in uh, young kids who want to play a video game, but they're going to have to read to understand the, uh, um, the prompts in the video game or, you know, things like animal crossing where it's just going and the words all play out on the screen. And so, you know, we had to tell my daughter, you know, okay, here's what it says. And after a while she got better and better and better at reading. Um, so I think I would just say, you know, for anybody out there, a parent saying, you know, video games bad for your kid. No, video games are not bad for your kid. Too much video games is probably bad. And you as a parent being involved in the video games that your kid is playing and how they're playing and whether they're playing or not. Um, that's the thing that's going to make the positive impact is the parent and the parent involvement, not too much of it. Right. Yep. Exactly. That being said, your young children should not play the last of us. No, <laughs> don't play that game. No, there are definitely don't games that they should not play that are more age appropriate than others. Uh, but you know, that's another podcast for another story that we can uh, talk about. So let's move into the topic of the show, which comes along with it. An article. Well, I'll read the article first, not the whole article, but I will read a highlight from it. And that is something that came up that caused a lot of stir on the internet. Uh, Ubisoft says decommissioned games will remain available to current owners as the title. What happened was uh, it came out that Assassin's Creed Liberation HD and Silent Hunter 5 briefly looked like they would be rendered completely unplayable by the move, contradicting Ubisoft's initial statements on what aspects of the game would be cut off. Ubisoft now says it was wrong wording and notices on the game store pages. The backstory, last week Ubisoft announced that it would be shutting off online support for selection of games between 2009 and 2019, including 11 on PC, and published a list. Only one of the games in the list, the 2019 multiplayer-only VR shooter Space Junkies, was going to be rendered completely inaccessible by the move. Since the announcement, though, Assassin's Creed and Silent Hunter were pulled from sale at the request of the publisher, and they also received notices on their Steam page that read, Please note that this title will not be accessible following September 1st. So again, it looked like they were going to delist some titles. Uh, this is kind of an issue that has been creeping up on many games over the years, especially as several games are online only titles. And because they're online only and studios do not support networks 
for a permanent period of time, that means that those games could be rendered uh, incomplete, unavailable, not able to purchase, not able to play. So, David, what what are we talking about today in our, our topic of the show in regards to video games being delisted? Yeah, so the topic of the show really is uh, media accessibility, right? And uh, guaranteeing media access and what that means both in terms of uh, video games, but also we, we have a kind of a way to talk about scripture there a little bit. Um, so I think it's one of those interesting things, especially for like online games. I was thinking about this back when I bought um, the uh, Tom Clancy game, The Division 2. It has to log into a server to be online to be playable. And so if that server is not available, if your internet connection is not available, then you can't play the game. Uh, and so I thought, you know, well, what is the lifespan then of this game? And there's other games like that. Certainly, you know, the online games that are online only multiplayer, uh, you know, you can't play offline World of Warcraft or uh, offline Overwatch, right? Or offline, um, I don't know, you name it. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of push, I think, by some folks, you know, Russ, you and I talked about you are a huge proponent for uh, or a huge uh, physical champion of physical media because you've still got your PlayStation one and two and three that you can pull out the disc and you can pop it in and you can play it. Uh, whereas, you know, there are some games that I probably can't play anymore because I don't have the console anymore. You know, I have Wii games and my Wii is now broken. And, you know, if I had them only digitally, would I still have access to them? Uh, you know, iPad is a great example. My iPad one, uh, the software is no longer working. And so therefore I cannot access the titles that are on there because there's no version old enough to work on the OS. That's old enough to play on there. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. I wanted to bring up the uh, project, the video game foundation, uh, video game history foundation, uh, gamehistory.org. They are a, a group that is trying to archive as many video games as possible so that you can go back and play them along with video game uh, memorabilia, video game magazines. Uh, but it really makes me think about how we have archived and accessed uh, scripture over the years. You know, I think about uh, a lot of my Bible commentaries, for instance, I've got volumes and volumes that take up shelves and shelves and shelves. And on the one hand, that's kind of annoying because I could fit all of it in my iPad. On the other hand, you know, if I'm taking all of my notes someplace that's online, are my kids going to have access to the notes that I'm taking where I know that I've got my grandfather's notes that he wrote down in a physical book, in a, in a physical index card, uh, you know, in a physical Bible. Uh, and this is one of those things that for years has been a difficult thing for Christians because you, know, you look back 1500 uh, AD, right? Before the printing press and before the Bible was getting translated into people's languages, you went to church so that you could hear scripture be read and then interpreted. People would yeah. go to their, their local Catholic church and the priest would read from the Latin and then would interpret for you what it actually meant. Right. And even then, maybe you were lucky if your town had a Bible, right? Most towns maybe had like yeah. one Bible for the town and it was housed in the church and otherwise nobody had access to scripture. Uh, so, you know, on the one hand, things are becoming more accessible than ever before. On the other hand, I do worry that with things being digital, there may come a time when something happens and we may lose access to it. 
Uh, in fact, one article I was reading the other day was talking about a woman who, uh, I'd have to look it up here. A woman basically ran a, uh, a video store and she had like a hundred different TVs playing and she recorded VHS tapes of those TVs (laughs) playing. And that is now the most complete archive that we have of television shows that were being played in the like eighties and nineties because she just happened to be recording them. But at the time stations probably weren't recording every single second that they broadcast. And then if they were, they were being re-recorded over because media was expensive. And so, you know, how do we archive things for future generations? And is it important? I don't know, Russ, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, on one hand, things are more accessible than ever. I think, and and I don't know if I can call it this, but I feel like we are kind of in the midst of a religious reformation, um, just with how our country is split, uh, how things are being done, and how, you know, kind of the more, uh, I don't even know what to say specifically, but just kind of how the church is moving in a direction where a lot of young people are starting to pull away from the church, mostly because they believe that the church isn't really teaching what it needs to be teaching anymore. And I view that as kind of the reason for that is like you said, people went to church a long time ago to have Bible verses read to them, have it be interpreted, have it be, you know, spoken to them. And while you had the ability and the access to commentaries, like you said, most of that was in libraries and how many people were going to libraries just to sit down and read massive commentary books, except for seminary students. Um, And as that stuff has become more and more readily available online for people to consume at a moment's notice and be able to look it up and be able to dive, you know, dive into it. I feel like we're seeing a, a vast change in where we are today as people but on the other hand, are we becoming now almost too reliant on the digital age? And that's where my concerns and fear, especially when it comes to media, is when it when it comes to online media and online sources, are we going to have permanent access to these things? And we're seeing, especially in the gaming community, so many of these gaming companies are just refusing. I mean, refusing to accept our money is one thing I'd like to say. Because, you know, if they put out the entire PlayStation 1 catalog and allowed us to purchase the games for, say, five bucks a pop, you know that people would be buying those games left and right and they'd be making money. But instead, what's happening is people are having to unfortunately rely on illegal means to access these old games that, you know, I I think, and again, if we go back to, I mean, we remember back in the mid-2000s to early 2010s, I feel like pirating was such a bigger deal than it is today. I know it still goes on and all that. And I'll admit that I've, you know, done something in my past, but now that it's so much easier to obtain that media at a cheaper cost and it's readily available. And then I also have streaming services that are also available. I don't find myself wanting to do that like I did back then when it was so difficult to get a hold of movies and stuff like that. The more that it became accessible to me, the more that I purchased, the more that I consumed. And it's just shocking that here in the gaming industry, what we're seeing is we're seeing more and more gatekeeping when it comes to previous games, older titles, things like that are just disappearing, not readily available, not easily available. And then the worst part is with the pandemic, what we've seen is anything that is collectible has just 
skyrocketed in value and price. And video games has been one of the biggest culprits of this. As somebody who, you know, collected older video games for the longest time, I had to stop because it's too expensive now. Games are just so expensive. For a while there, it was so cheap to collect. You know, I could buy a game for two to five bucks from someone or buy a, a handful of games for 20 bucks, 30 bucks from someone who's just trying to get rid of them. Now the, the games are costing hundreds of dollars because they're so difficult to get. I just think that we need to be smarter when it comes to this. I think it needs to be a two-prong approach. We need to be smart about archiving and making things readily available. And on top of it, we just need to you know, understand and realize that we all want to consume older media. Like, stop stopping us from doing that and allow us to do that at our own, you know, pace and leisure and what we want. But, you know, well, that's, I think that me, my soapbox. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, one of the things that I realized in my studies for my Master of Divinity was just the wealth of information in physical media, especially in libraries, uh, that is not necessarily available. Right. I mean, there, there are more and more books becoming digitally available, but there are so many books that are not digitally available. Uh, there are so many resources that are not digitally available. Um, so I guess this would just be, you know, the, the last little part of our podcast here. Um, and then we've got to jump on over to our Monday night discord and uh, do all that. But uh, the last part of our podcast, I would just say, you know, value physical media. I would definitely value having at least one uh, Bible in your home, right? Just in case all the electronics in the world stop working and you, you are looking for scripture, uh, you can find it there. And then also I would say, you know, maybe crack into uh, a new adventure of finding physical media and uh, maybe you'll find something there that you never found before. But we'd love to hear your comments. Uh, continue this conversation on our Discord channel, our Facebook page, uh, YouTube comments. Uh, also want to just shout out up here. We've got patreon.com church for gamers. If you like the content that we create and you want to be one of our patrons, you can go to patreon.com slash church for gamers and you can support us. I want to say special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially uh, Lonnie White, who is one of our $10 a month supporters. And a huge thank you also to the Boulder Spirit Foundation, which is one of our huge supporters as well. Uh, and Methodist Helping Methodists. Uh, we've received some funds from them uh, to support our podcast and our community. So I want to say thanks to everybody who supports us. Thanks to everybody who joins us in our communities. Uh, and as always, God bless you. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Russ, anything else to add? That's it. Thank you guys so much. And we'll see you next time on the Crossfire Podcast. God bless everybody. 